Well, good morning, everybody. It's been a beautiful worship service. I must thank uh, Chris and the leadership team for hosting us today. Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank uh, Andrew and Kevin and Nathan for organizing this beautiful weekend, and it's a lovely privilege to uh, be here with you. I bring you greetings from Avondale College of Higher Education, in particular the Avondale Seminary. Uh, Avondale restructured, and we wanted to uh, rebrand ourselves. Instead of the Faculty of Theology, we're now the Avondale Seminary. Uh, God has been blessing our work. Uh, Last year, we published, uh, our staff published eight books. Over the last two years, God has blessed us. We've been able to baptize over 500 people in our cross-cultural mission experience. Um, did I say amen? Do you say amen, Yann Victoria? Do you, do you say yes, God? That's beautiful. Uh, this year, I'll be leading a group of students to uh, the Cook Islands, and we'll be running five evangelistic programs. Um, over the last two years, we've been able to uh, work toward just over $300,000 worth of research grants. Uh, I led a team of researchers looking at discipleship for the South Pacific Division, and my colleague is um, looking at uh, discipleship and tithing across the world field for the General Conference. So we're grateful for God's blessing on our team and the work we're able to do um, around, around the division. This year, we have um, three associate degree students just getting ready for their bachelor's. We've got about 15 in the bachelor's degree program preparing for ministry. And then our postgraduate space has really taken off. We've got probably all up about 20 in the postgraduate space doing master's and, uh, and doctoral level work as well. So all up in the seminary, we have about 100 students uh, preparing for ministry and others who are looking at advancing their skills and their competency levels so that God can use them more effectively in ministry. So it's a real privilege to be here and to be able to, um, to share God's word with you. Uh, Brenton and Kylie have termed us the B team because, you know, we're just locals from Avondale uh, this is their home, and as we were driving over, they oh, this place and that place, and did you tell me your first kiss was somewhere? No, 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 I'm joking. So it's really great to travel with them. I injured my knee playing soccer, so I'm not fully mobile, still think I'm 20, so it's great that Brenton has been able to uh, chauffeur both his wife, and I, you know, I'm just tagging along. Let's turn to Scripture, uh, the book of uh, Revelation, for a bit of reflection this morning. And I want to thank uh, the young people for leading us in worship. It's just been beautiful. Thank you guys for the awesome item. Oh my, that was just beautiful. So Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And we'll spend our time in meditation and reflection on um, this passage of Scripture. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Let's just pause for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for being with us as we've worshipped and sung and glorified your name. We pray as we open your word that your spirit would come even closer to touch and to minister to each of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, there are times in life when I come to worship and long for something out of the ordinary to happen. I must confess that my life, including my worship, 
can so often be mundane and predictable. Sam was living with Grandma, and uh, Grandma was a devout Christian, and she never missed a service. Now, one day the circus came to town. Now, that would not have been unusual, except on this particular occasion, it would be one visit to town, and it would be on a Wednesday night. And of course, Wednesday night was prayer meeting night. And so Sam came along to Grandma, can I go, oh, can I go? And uh, eventually, Grandma, Grandma relented. Well, later that evening, Sam got home and caught up with Grandma, and Grandma said, well, how did it go, Sam? And Sam responded, well, Grandma, if you go to the circus once, you'll never want to go back to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Our passage before us this morning, we meet Jesus in a disarming encounter. Revelation 5, on your device, in your Bible, let's, uh, let's read together. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The throne in Revelation is contested territory. And immediately when we see the symbol here in Revelation 4 and now again in Revelation 5, it is contested territory. Immediately for those early Christians and for those of us who are alert to the Old Testament resonances of the text, John is alluding to Isaiah 14, 13, where Lucifer himself declared, I will make myself like God. So the throne in Revelation is is contested territory. What's the scroll? Well, very interesting. In ancient times, when a king came into power, that king received two things. And I'm thinking particularly here of Deuteronomy 17, 2 Kings 2, and a range of other texts that give us some background. The king would receive a royal crown, and the king would receive the covenant scroll. The ability of the king to open the scroll and actually read the scroll gave him the prerogative to rule. And so not only did the crown signify his, his regalness and his power and authority, but his ability to read and to govern the people by opening up the scroll. That clearly is the background to Revelation 5. And so Revelation 5 is what we might call, you know, all this theological jargon, we might just call it an enthronement scene, or we might call it an installation service. Someone is being installed as king. Someone is being enthroned as king. So that's the Old Testament background that sheds light, and we'll talk a little bit more about that this afternoon, in terms of what's happening here in Revelation chapter 5. The scroll had seals, seven seals, boom, 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 seven seals. And the seals simply designated authority, ownership. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? In fact, there are only three occasions in Revelation when a mighty angel appears on the scene. Here in 5.2, and then in Revelation 10, and then in Revelation 18. 
And it's always, it's always a momentous event that brings about a mighty angel on the narrative stage. So here, the angel is asking, who's worthy? Who's worthy to open this scroll and to read the contents of the scroll? That's the question being posed. Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Deathly silence. No one. No one. John's three-storied world is scoured. No one in the heavenly regions, no one on the earthly regions, nothing in the realm below, no one, no one. Now it makes sense because Revelation 4 has just ended where it is declared, and we read that so beautifully, Revelation 4 declares, only you are worthy God, Yahweh. In fact, the word there, the Greek word there is pantokratos. It's the word reserved for the Roman Caesar. And God takes on that, of course, the text is countercultural in its first century context. God takes on that title and says, I am, in fact, the legitimate ruler. No one else is worthy. So there's no one. Have a look at John's response. Have a look at John's response. Verse 4. I wept and wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. The Greek text kind of gives you the idea of uncontrollable sobbing. Uncontrollable sobbing. John is just weeping. He's weeping. He's weeping. No protection for God's children in trial. No judgment upon a persecuting world. No ultimate triumph for those who've trusted the name of Jesus. No heaven, no earth, no future inheritance, no salvation. No one can open the scroll. And John weeps. Because at this point in the, in the drama of the narrative that's unfolding, even though we know Jesus has, de has defeated Satan's sin and death, it appears to John as if all is lost. All is lost. The plan of salvation has hit a massive, immovable wall, and it's going nowhere. So John weeps uncontrollably. Because he recognizes that humanity have been forsaken, abandoned, and indeed lost. So verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. One of the elders. Someone who himself has been regenerated. Someone who has 
experience the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Someone who knows what it is to lie in a cold, dark tomb and then to hear and to experience the power of Jesus in resurrection. Someone from the human family begins to speak to Jesus and says, uh, pardon me, speak to John and says, don't weep, don't weep. Lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. Now again, in, in our context and back in that context as well, we were just looking the other day, my wife and kids love, they really like, uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. As a big moment. Warney was right in front of that big lion, you know, and he, he was there. And today, what do we still say? The lion is, you know, it's the king, it's authority, it's power. Well, you know, back in that ancient context, it's, it was still the very same thing. The lion was noble and powerful. It was the king of the beasts. And so we anticipate now, oh, let me share this with you. Let me share this with you. John's writing, okay, John's writing, the book of Revelation, is in fact part of a whole genre of literature called apocalyptic literature, right? It's the word, um, uh, English word is disclosure, to reveal, to disclose, to unveil, right? Apocalyptic, apocalypsis. So there's a whole range of literature in that first century milieu, writing in response to the fall of Jerusalem and Roman occupation, Roman persecution, trying to make sense of God and what's God doing amongst these people. And you know what? In the literature of that time, the expectation, the expectation is that the Messiah would come. Guess, guess what? In what symbol? The lion. The lion. So with that back, now John's writing it as part of the same strand. As part of that same strand. Now let's have a look. At verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is a mind-wrenching reversal. Because John is going against the grain of the apocalyptic thought world of his day in saying that the lion would triumph. Now John portrays a lamb. A lamb. But it's very interesting. There are two words in Greek for lamb. The one is amnos, and the other, the other is anion. Very interestingly, John chooses the word for lamb, anion. Anion. And sometime later, in Revelation 11 first and in Revelation 13 and onward, beasts will arise and John will term these beasts Thurion. So a very intentional play on words. Anion, Thurion. John is meticulous in his attention to the word he chooses to identify this lamb, going against the thinking and the processes of that first century world. Now, this morning I, I propose that it's inadequate to say, well, you know, um, the lion is the lamb because, well, that's it. It's as simple as that, Kale. 
Can I suggest it's insufficient to say that Jesus was a lamb at his first coming and he'll be a lion at his second coming? I don't think the text you know, warrants that sort of simplistic interpretation. How does, the, how, how does the lion triumph? The lion prevails. The lion triumphs by suffering as the slain lamb. By suffering and dying as a slain lamb. Notice there verse 6 in your Bible, on your device, looking as if it had been slain. The Greek word there for slain is sfazo. Language is pretty graphic. Language is pretty graphic. To butcher. To slaughter. To maim violently. On the words we could associate with the notion of slain. The Greek word there for standing means resurrection. It means resurrection. The lamb defeated death by his resurrection. And Dale gave us a beautiful lesson on that this morning. Look at the KJV. Standing as if slain. New American Standard. Stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now, we already know that the notion of lamb will talk about sacrifice. We know that, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be enough to simply say, you know, standing, full stop? Why must John go on and say, standing as if it had been slain? Because now he changes tenses. He changes tenses, and the word now becomes, from sfadzo, the word becomes esphagmanon. And it simply means, listen to what it means. Listen to what it means. Expresses an abiding condition as a result of the past act of being slain. I'll read it again. Expresses an abiding condition as a result of the past act of being slain. It's as if the lamb is the ever-suffering lamb, standing in triumph and victory, having prevailed over death. But it, it's as if, it's as if the lamb is the ever-suffering lamb. So the slain lamb, the slain lamb is the way in which God rules the world. The slain lamb is the portrayal of what is happening right there at the very center of God's throne. You know, today we talk about, uh, you know, I play soccer, so I'm an Arsenal fan, and, you know, they're third on the table, very frustrating. And I've got some here, probably Man United fans, or, you know, we live on the Central Coast, so I'm a Mariners fan there at the bottom of the table. You know, it's just, things are not just working out for me this season. But, you know, uh, in the U.S., I've always been a Bulls fan since the days of Jordan, and I'm dating myself now. So, you know, we, we, have, we support, we support, you know, whether it's the Miami, Miami Heat or the Denver Broncos or the Mariners or, you know, uh, oh, Melbourne Victory, pardon me. I mean, you're part of the neck of the woods. We have our teams that have these bullish, brute, powerful names, don't they? And how about if I said to you this morning, hey, do I have any followers of the Lamb here? You know, any followers of the Lamb? You know, it's, it's so ironic, isn't it? It's so ironic. You're not a follower of, you know, some sort of powerful, dynamic, speedy, ruthless animal. 
just followers of the Lamb. Timid, gentle Lamb. Have a look at John 12, 32 in your Bible. John 12, 32. John 12, 32. And Jesus says, But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, all men, all people, pantas, all people, to myself. You know, the devil has a, has a heap of things, doesn't it? A heap of things to lure and entice and draw us away from Jesus and his kingdom. But all God has is His Son lifted up on a scandalous cross, nailed outside Jerusalem, the drawing power of His Son, high and lifted up on a cross. You know, Jeremiah, it talks about God draws us with loving kindness. Not just with love. I mean, that's just like peanut butter. Loving kindness, like peanut butter and jam. It's even better. That's how He draws us. But what's pretty cool about this word draw in the Greek is actually the word alko. And the notion of draw in the Greek alko, if you look it up in your, um, in your Greek concordance, it actually says to drag if allowed to. I can't think of a better verse within Scripture that opens up the heart of God and His desperate desire to save runaway human beings. I can't think of a better verse in Scripture that shows the relentless heart of God for human beings who are not interested in Him. He is willing to drag you, listen now, if you will let Him. He won't violate your free will, but He'll drag you. 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 That's how desperate He is to save you this morning. But He won't violate your freedom of choice. He'll drag you if you'll let Him. So right there, in the heart of the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the cross of Christ is the throne of God. Right there, the cross of Christ is the throne of God. Now, why is the Lamb in the center of the throne? Why is He there in particular? Please turn to Ezekiel 28, 14. Please turn to slide. Ezekiel... 28 and verse 14. And it reads, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Do I have any other translations of verse 14, please? We amongst family, please, please read for me. Any other translations? Verse 14. You walked among the gems of fire. Thank you. Do you have another translation? Oh, walked among the stones of fire. Any other translations, please? Walked among. That's pretty cool. Okay. The text that John most frequently alludes to, in fact, you know, most New Testament writers, it's called the Alex X. 
totaling 70. We call it the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint has for the word among, in a couple of translations, the Greek word is in meso, in the middle. Among is the translation, but the original language would be in the middle. In the middle. We could translate Ezekiel 28, 14, you walked in the midst. You walked in the middle. Can I put it to you? Right there in the middle, where Satan had hurled his accusations, right there in the middle, in the center, where Satan had spat out his insinuations about God and God's character and God's person and God's government, right there in the center is a lamb. Standing as if it were slain, answering the accusations that were hurled into the face of God in the dateless past. There's the answer, a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the middle. You see, the cross is the way in which God rules the world. The cross is the way in which God rules the world. The slain lamb. The slain lamb. Two boys were fighting. The one was bigger and stronger, and I tell you what, he climbed into the smaller fellow and couple of hard punches and some knees, and oh, this fellow was really feeling it. He was beaten and battered and scurried away. An older gentleman, not too far away, saw the skirmish take place, so he went up to this bigger guy who was now, you know, boastful and, 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 and quite haughty, and he said to him, are you, are you proud at what's just happened? You know, did you just beat that smaller kid? He says, yeah, yeah, I beat him. I won. I'm stronger than him. And so the old man said, aren't you ashamed? Aren't you ashamed to beat someone who is weaker than you? You see, if God were to use force in this cosmic conflict, in this great controversy, if God were to use force, then, then Satan would would throw it right back in the face of God. God, aren't you ashamed to beat me since I'm weaker than you? You see, Satan could only be defeated by someone who is weaker than he is. Hence the incarnation. Hence the incarnation. Hence Jesus taking on the mystery of mystery, surrendering himself, omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipotent, surrenders himself to Mary's womb. Mystery of mysteries, the mystery of godliness. It would take Jesus in human flesh to defeat Satan. Let's go back to Revelation 5. And let's look at the response. Revelation 5. As we look at the response. Verse 7, he came, this is the Lamb, right? And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the right hand signifying power and authority. 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. The word new there could be chronos, you know, chronology, or it could be kairos. And it's that second word because it's a new epoch. It's a new era. It's a brand new beginning. Something like this has never, ever happened in the history of the plan of salvation. Something new. Something new. And so what do they sing? You are worthy. Talking about the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And you know what? As you read those closing verses, the crescendo of praise, it just, it just grows and escalates and intensifies and just broadens until you get the whole universe in heaven, on earth, under the earth, the whole universe. Worthy is the Lamb. Just singing. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. What's our response as we wrap up this morning? Can I suggest three quick things? Number one, praise God no matter what you face because Jesus has already faced it. Praise God no matter what you face because Jesus has already faced it. Matthew has an interesting account with the storm of Gethsemane, the painful horror of Calvary's cross awaiting him. Matthew 26, Jesus gathers with the disciples and he sings. Wow, I would have loved to have been there to hear Jesus sing. Knowing that he will face the eye of the storm, knowing that he would die an eternal death of separation from his father, Jesus gathers and he sings. He sings in the midst of this impending storm. I challenge you this morning to praise God. No matter what you face, no matter what you experience, because praise brings deliverance. Praise changes our perspective. Change, praise gives us God's angle on things. And so praise God as you journey through your week because Jesus has faced it all before. Number two, can I suggest that your best life, and indeed mine, your best life is a Jesus life, a life of service and humility and vulnerability. Jesus came to serve. Matthew 20, 28, he said, The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Interestingly, sin started with pride, but was overcome with humility. And let me say, in the context of this powerful symbol of lamb, vulnerability is not weakness. Of course, in our Western culture, we're pretty good at looking good and keeping it all intact, aren't we? And so we don't show our true selves. We're not authentic. We hide behind position or title or 
you know, our money and our assets, our clothing, you know, our family, our spouse. We hide behind all of these things and we, we're not truly genuine. We're not truly authentic. But the symbol of lamb reminds us that as the people of God, we've got to be authentic. We've got to be real. We've got to be vulnerable. And that's how you open up to people and you find people opening up to you. And you're able to journey alongside them when you're real, when you're yourself, and when you showed people what Jesus is doing in your life. So your best life is a Jesus life, a life of service and humility and vulnerability. And my last point this morning, be an agent of reversal. Be an agent of reversal. You know what's pretty cool about this passage is that throughout the book of Revelation, the devil parodies God. He copies or he mimics or he imitates God. The devil's always doing it throughout the whole book, right? Setting up these counterfeits to God. But guess what? Guess what? There's one time, there's one time where the lamb parodies the devil. Just one time. And it's right here in Revelation 5. The lamb, the lamb has seven horns. Just like the beast of Daniel 7 has seven horns. So this is one time that the lamb parodies the beast. And what that tells me is that, yes, the devil has got us into this muck and mess and mire of sin and death and brokenness and suffering. Praise God. Hallelujah. The Lamb has reclaimed, redeemed, and restored all that the devil has taken. So be an agent of reversal. And when you read Matthew 25... Matthew 25, in the judgment, God is talking to agents of reversal. They were hungry. What did you do? You brought them food. They were thirsty. What did you bring them? Agents of reversal. Brought them water. Uh, they needed clothing. You went and built a factory. Did, oh, no, no, no. You got them clothing. Right? They were naked. You got them clothing. They were in prison. You hired a lawyer. No, 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 no. You just went to? visit them. Very simple. Very simple to be an agent of reversal. So where you see loneliness, as an agent of reversal, you bring friendship. With your questions, no, please, don't have all the answers. <laughs> Just come alongside and listen and journey with that person. If they need a friend, you come along and be a friend. If they have a need, you come along and you fill it. Be like the lamb. Be like the lamb. Be an agent of reversal. So yes, I don't know what team you follow, but I'm pretty sure that everyone here, all of us included, are followers of the lamb. Followers of Jesus the lamb. And today he is at the center, the very center of God's throne, and he's given us a model for life and a model for ministry. And I pray this morning that God's word would settle deep in your heart and bear fruit for his glory. Our precious and loving Father, we thank you for your spirit who's been present among us, ministering to our hearts. 
and drawing us closer to the precious side of Jesus. We thank you that like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, our hearts have been strangely warmed. And why it is and how it is that you love us with such matchless, such indescribable love, we cannot understand. But our hearts are full of joy. Our hearts are full of worship. To thank, to praise, to glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for how you love. Teach us, Father, what it means to live like the Lamb, to walk like the Lamb, to have the disposition, to have the attitude, to have the mindset of the Lamb, not weakness, but rather, rather, Father, meekness clothed in your power, clothed in your strength. Bless this beautiful church. Thank you for them hosting us today. May your blessing be upon them, and may your spirit lead and guide them into the future you've destined for them. We thank and praise you, Jesus. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.